Hey everybody, Michael June here with Game Changers for Government Contractors. Today I have Scott with me. Scott, before we get into our topic today, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do? Thanks, Mike. Great to be here with you. I am the president of Potomac Health Associates. That's a firm that I started a number of years ago after getting into government contracting in a significant way. I had been working for a couple of consulting firms, one of which got a large contract with the Defense Department to make some changes to what we now know as TRICARE. That was really my introduction to federal contracting from sort of the consulting and advisory role to DOD. I was with a small group of about a thousand other consultants working for the department, but that was my introduction. At that time, they were also doing a lot of contracting for primary care services through the different branches of the service. And I sort of saw that as an opportunity to try and take my contracting knowledge and experience in the healthcare environment into a consulting practice. And Pretty much that is what I have been doing since then. Initially, I started on the front end, working in proposal development. Then I added some legal expertise, government contracting experts, when we found ourselves getting into disputes that we wanted to challenge, mostly with GAO. And then I guess the third phase of our operations now is working as a consultant throughout the life of a contract with our clients. Nice. TRICARE is an interesting way to get into this market. I remember back in the day when I was in the army and people would talk about TRICARE and it wasn't a good discussion back in the mid nineties, you know, or late nineties having that discussion with folks, but you know, it's come a long way over the years. So maybe, maybe your folks have had a hand in that. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that I can't believe in seven plus years of doing this podcast. I don't think we've ever talked about CPARs. It was interesting when you brought that topic up because I'm like, how have we never had this discussion? On, on here. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. So for the folks that are unaware, what are CPARs? Let's start there. Well, CPAR is standing for the Contracting Performance Assessment Reporting System, CPARs. Basically, it's the government report card. It is a mechanism that is designed to provide a reasonably consistent way of evaluating contractor performance across agencies and over time. There are two probably most significant elements to this or implications to a CPARS. One is when you are first preparing a proposal, past performance will generally ask for an offer to submit CPARS that they may have if they are a current and existing government contractor. Organizations that are new to government contracting will not have that CPAR, a federal CPAR in their past performance. So they will have to make that up through civilian performance. The other major element of a CPAR is evaluating a contract during the life of the contract. And the requirements right now call for an evaluation to take place at least once a year for multi-year contracts. So it's basically the government's report card. I believe they can do it more often than that, right? They can do it quarterly, right? Yes, they can do interim evaluations at, I believe, the discretion of the timing discretion of the contracting officer. 
If you're struggling with your government contracting business, I want to encourage you today to go sign up for a free coaching session with me. You can go in the description of this podcast. There's a link to my calendar and you can go pick a time where we can sit down for 30 minutes, talk about what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, what you should change. And then if coaching makes sense for you, I'll actually go over the options on how you can get started with coaching so we can take your business to the next level. Now let's get back into this episode. Talk to me a little bit about, you sort of opened the door on how they're used, but can you go deeper on how they're used by the government? The government will use the CPARs after evaluating them if they have been submitted as part of a proposal. That is one way that they will use them. If an offeror has CPARs, they will generally list them in their past performance references. Sometimes they will be the only past performance reference that will be sought if the offeror is an existing contractor. Other times they can supplement private sector contracts that they want to use as well. The other main function is for evaluation of ongoing performance of a contractor throughout the life of the contract. And so that's where the report card element comes into play. It can be used not only by the existing contracting officer, but if an organization is bidding on another contract, other contracting officers can look at their past performance as well. One of the things that I was thinking about, maybe you can talk about briefly here, is so that obviously applies when you are a prime, but what about when you're a sub? that's an interesting question because a sub may be in the same position where they may not have federal contracting experience as part of their portfolio. So they will be in the same position as the prime that may be bidding on something that does not, or may be their first federal contract. Prime has past performance with a government contract, either as a prime or as a sub that may be used with the following exception. You have to look very carefully at the evaluation evaluation criteria for past performance to see whether or not the evaluation will include the past performance of the sub. Sometimes a subcontractor will go in and may have very impressive past performance, but if the evaluation criteria specify that they will only consider the past performance of the prime, then you are, I wouldn't say you're shut out, but the evaluation technically will not include the evaluation of the sub. Now, that raises another question now that I think about it, and that is that when an RFP is first released, the evaluation criteria will make those kinds of delineations or specifications, and that would be a time, the first time, to give some pushback and see if you can, in the question and answer period, for example, see if you can make a request to the contracting officer to modify the evaluation criteria to allow the past performance of a sub. One of the things that's my understanding is as a prime, the the government is required, I guess, to do your CPARs, but as a sub, they're not. So if I'm on a contract, they're going to be focused on doing that for the prime. And you will see it where sometimes they will do it for the sub. Sometimes you have to request it. Is that been your experience as well? Or where sometimes they don't do that for subs. And so you're kind of going through and you're doing work, but you're not getting this rating. So you're technically not getting a scorecard, which would apply to past performance proposals, you know, the past performance section of proposals in the future. So have you seen that challenge? And if so, you have maybe a tip or two for those subs that are listening on how to get a contracting officer 
to to go in and rate them? Well, if you look at the standard rating element for CPARs, that is, again, the element that is consistent across all agencies. One of the evaluation criteria is subcontractor management. And what I have seen before with some of our clients is that the assessing official, who may be the contracting officer, may or may not include how the prime has managed their subcontracts. Now, that doesn't necessarily, I mean, that's a management issue rather than an issue that talks about necessarily the performance of the sub, but all of the evaluation instruments, the standard instrument includes a requirement or the expectation that the prime will be evaluated on the extent to which they have effectively used a subcontractor to achieve the goals that they were originally designed to. Uh Now, how to address that if it's not being used? I would say that the best way that we have found is for an experienced contractor to raise that issue right at the outset, to raise that, for example, at the kickoff conference, or the kickoff conference may be full of a number of other details, but I would make sure that the prime addresses that issue right at the start of the contract so that the contracting officer knows that the prime will be looking at that, will expect to be evaluated evaluated by that, will want to be evaluated by that criteria, especially if they know they've got a good working relationship with a very effective Mm -hmm. provider. So I think it's sort of begin with the end in mind when you start the contract right at the outset, that that is one of the issues that can be raised. That's a good point there. Do you have any thoughts on like best practices for contractors to consider around this? Yeah, I would say that in general, what you and Josh and others have talked about is the 80-20 rule also applies here. And by that, you've said before that 80% of the work in achieving a successful contract takes place before the RFP is released. And that if you don't pay attention to things until that's released, you're really behind the eight ball. That really applies too when you're talking about CPARs. And that's a little bit of what I was alluding to before as making sure that you bring it up right at the outset so that, you know, you put the contracting officer on notice that this is something that you expect and that you want to make sure is done properly. Now, the other tactic that we would recommend is that shortly before the first evaluation or the draft evaluation is provided to a contractor on a contract, that you basically do a self-evaluation and imagine you are the contracting oh. officer and fill out the form, the same form that you're going to see that they will provide to you in a draft format. And w- one of the other characteristics that I think we all know of is that contracting officers are really busy. They've got all kinds of things going on. Ask them if they would like to see your self-assessment. And if there is something that you can do that will make their job easier, then see if they will accept it. They may not, but you can at least submit something that you would like to see that you would like to see them write for you and put that in their mind and give them some idea about where you think you deserve to be evaluated. 
And I guess another point that I would emphasize, again, with this notion of begin with the end in mind, is that as soon as you are awarded a contract, to look very carefully at the QASP requirements, any of the other performance requirements that can be expressed in terms of metrics. And then when the contract starts, that you begin to look at how those metrics might be evaluated with respect to the way the FAR defines performance criteria. They've got five basic criteria, starting from exceptional, very good, satisfactory, marginal, and unsatisfactory. Every contractor should know exactly how those evaluation criteria can be achieved according to the definition of the FAR. Because I think what we found before is that sometimes there's a misperception about what you need to do in order to receive exceptional ratings. And you can actually have deficiency, not deficiencies, but weaknesses in your performance and still receive an exceptional rating. So, you know, I think the best practice is probably as a starting point, I would read the guidance manual that is put out that you can find on the web. It's a 50 page document, a little bit tedious, but will give you some idea about what is coming. And then with that, with the definitions in, from the FAR, and you know how you can achieve a certain rating, then I would start to begin to think about how you can quantify what you need to in order to achieve a particular rating, even at the start of the contract. That's really good advice. I think for most contractors, the challenge they run into is they don't read the rules. It's really hard to play a game when you don't know the rules. And it's very frustrating to play that game when you don't know the rules and people keep telling you what the rules are as you're going. And for anybody who doesn't realize this, I mean, you can go read all the rule books online. I mean, it's a simple Google search and you can find the rule books, whether it's this or just looking through the entire FAR or whatever it might be. And so knowing the rules is really important. And if you don't know what rules apply to something, one of the simple things in a proposal is just look at the clauses that they put in there. That's the rules that they're expecting this to go by. And so those are some general things to be aware of. Because I had a client the other day that was like, hey, somebody snuck this clause in and we're not sure which one trumps what. How do we figure that out? And, you know, and we had to go back and forth and figure out, hey, I think because of this one being here, this one supersedes that one. And then just asking for clarification. But you know, we had to go through and look at what those rules were. But it was right there in the document document, which is great. Last question for you here is let's assume for some reason something out of my control happens or even worse, I unexpectedly get a bad rating. What can I do if I'm in that situation where all of a sudden I find myself, I've got a bad rating and I need to dispute this and somehow, what are the options there? Well, the first thing is that you will get a draft of the CPAR after the reporting period concludes and when the contracting officer or the assessing official is supposed to prepare it. Now, it will be a draft that you can either accept as is or you can provide comment to. I would always try and provide some comments, even if you've received a rating that is acceptable to you and is as high as you can get 
because your comments as a contractor go into the official file. And that is information that if you feel the evaluation has not fully reflected what you think your performance really, how it should be evaluated, you can add those details yourself and submit them back to the assessing official for their consideration. Now, they are under no obligation to accept that, but we have found on a number of occasions, if you have presented a reasonable and logical progression or discussion of why you deserve to be rated better, you may be able to get your evaluation increased or improved based on what you have submitted and your ability to convince the assessing official. And that's why we said, fill out the form on a trial basis first. Have it available so you can submit it to the contracting officer before they start working on their draft, or if they won't accept it, you will have already done probably most of the work that you will need for your rebuttal. So those are probably some of the best ways to think about approaching it. That's great advice. I like doing that ahead of time and giving it to the contracting officer because as somebody who's busy, and I don't know that I'm near as busy in some ways as contracting officers, when you look at all the things they're juggling, I mean, they're spinning a whole lot of plates. And I think as somebody who's busy, I often need a jump start on something like this. As someone who's busy, I may not think of something or I may not look at something that to me is insignificant about the work you did that you feel was like, hey, this thing that I did allowed us to be super successful. And just by you pointing it out and giving me that jump start, there's a good chance I'm going to include those things in my review. Again, people are busy. They need the right. jump start. I use it all the time with Google searching and AI and different things to get a jump start on the things that we're doing. That's really helpful to a lot of people. I thought that was my last question, but I have two more actually. Sure. One of them is, have you seen situations, because I've heard of situations, not all the time, where the contractor feels like they got a poor evaluation because the contracting officer just didn't like them. They were chosen and it wasn't the contractor they wanted, or they went to the wrong high school, or maybe the contracting officer or a program manager on the team kind of got together and they were doing things because they didn't like the contractor or what whatever, and they just put them in a hard position and they feel like they're just being unfairly treated all the way. Is there a process above them to go and dispute this or escalate your issue if you feel like, hey, these folks are being unfair and it doesn't matter what proof I've submitted. They're saying, eh, you failed the test and here's your bad report card. Suck it up. Well, there's one internal level within the CPARS process itself that can be considered, and that is that the assessing individual has to get the sign-off of a higher individual, a review official, I believe, is the terminology. And that is where some of the dispute may be resolved or at least improved. The review official, presumably, if they're doing what they should be, should be taking a reasonably objective and nonpartisan view of what information is submitted both by the contracting officer as well as the contractor representative. So that is, I think, one level above the initial problematic review that may have been provided by the contracting officer. And I think above that, CPARS can be run through 
through the CDA process and considered officially as a Contract Disputes Act appeal. So that is where it gets to a level where you would presumably appeal to GAO or some other venue, the Court of Federal Claims, to try and get some remediation or some satisfaction about a process that you don't feel has been taken fairly. Yeah, that's the thing is fairly. They typically last, what, three to five years before they kind of fall off? Isn't that the, the norm? Yeah, I think when I last checked, CPARs are considered to be timely within a three-year period. But some RFPs will specify that you can consider or submit information, for example, as far back as five years. Awesome. And then I know people can Google this, but do you happen to have the website off the top of your head? They can go and log in. You don't have to create an account, but go and log in and see their ratings. Yeah, that is the same official site that is initiated through the CPAR system. I don't have the website, Mike, for that right now. Yeah, they just Google it. And you can only do that for your own ratings, obviously. You can't get access to others. Too bad you can't see everybody else's report cards. (laughs) Well, you know, that's an interesting thing. It would be nice to be able to do that because people talk about their CPARs in proposals and other things like that. And you just don't know if you don't have access to the system, you don't know how accurate or inaccurate they may be. Yeah. Hey, great discussion on this. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about it. Again, I can't believe we haven't talked about it yet, but I really appreciate you kind of going through this and just giving a 101 course on this and some advanced strategies like the one about prepping this for them. I think that's an advanced strategy that most people hadn't really thought of. So thank you again. It's just the modification of your 80-20 rule, just applying it now to CPARS. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, I would really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast and screenshot it and tag me on LinkedIn or whatever social media you use. So thank you again for joining us today and we'll see you next time.